listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Welcome back to our seats and have a seat. just want to give a big welcome to everyone this morning. I see a lot of new faces and for those of you who may not know who we all are, I'm Rusty Langford, one of the pastors here along with Jared and Luke. And so we just want you to know, as, as pastors here, we are glad you are welcome here, but also as an entire church family, just as you heard Savannah say, we welcome you here just as you are, because we don't give you just our welcome, we give you the welcome of Jesus. He's a Jesus who loves everyone, regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what you've not done, where you've not been, that we come together for His glory and to find the freedom that He brings in the gospel. And this morning we continue a, a series talking about a, emotional health. As I said last week, that sort of a title of a series might sound kind of strange to some of you, especially you super tough people. But uh, we want to see how, what it looks like to follow Jesus as Lord, not just in regard to the stuff that's happening on the outside of our lives, but to the core of who we are. A lot of that has to do with how we feel and the things that we have faced in our lives. And this morning we're going to look at breaking the power of the past. And we're going to look in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Probably a story that some of you, if not many of you, are not familiar with. But you can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9 or open your phones to 2 Samuel 9 or device. Or you can just follow along up here on the screen. And this is a tough issue this morning as we look at breaking the power of the past. And so we'll just scratch the surface like we always do, but hopefully it'll find a way to help you begin to think about these things and to pursue that within your missional community, or maybe you just need to come and speak with me or one of the pastors afterwards. But 2 Samuel chapter 9, and David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, it's a name we need to, to learn this morning, Mephibosheth. You, might, you could just call him Meph, I guess. Not, not Meph, Meph. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul... And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all 
My lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Father, we ask you this morning that you would just teach us again what we've already learned through song. That your grace is amazing, and no matter how deep the stain of our sin or the shame of our past, that you are greater, you are bigger, you are more powerful. Father, we, as we look at the, just the, the history of our lives, and sometimes it's overwhelming, we thank you, God, that as we look at the history of your grace, it is greater. And so today we pray that you would teach us from your word, and God, that you would do great things by your spirit, even as we gather together today. In Jesus' name, amen. I have these three good pictures of my children up here when they're babies. And you know what these pictures are good for? These pictures are great to put on your dash and cover your check engine light. Okay, so if you're having car problems, that check engine light pops up. You just put these babies down there and you look at them. And instead of that frustrating, nagging feeling that something's wrong, you feel good. You think of the Lord's blessings in your life, and then you go on. Because, I mean, really, that check engine light, it probably doesn't mean anything serious is going on. Right? I mean, how long have I driven with that light there, and nothing really bad's happened? I mean, you know, if I just do the right things, you know, it's probably just if I went and was willing to pay the money to have the computer hooked up to it, it's probably just a door it and shutting correctly. It's probably not a big deal. So I just keep on. I get my oil changed. I make sure my tires are taken care of. I do all of the proper maintenance. And so everything will probably be okay. And if any symptoms start to act up on the car, you've always got the radio, right? Just turn it up, okay? So these pictures and a little noise, and we'll just see what happens. Well, as goofy as that is and unwise... That's exactly how many of us treat the pain that we've experienced in our past. Exactly the same. We think, you know what? It's probably not that big a deal. You know, I probably don't need to to really address that. I'm sure that lots of other people have problems bigger than that. So I'll just sort of cover it up and move on. And you know what I'll do? It's just like I do that maintenance and those oil checks. If I just buckle down on these spiritual disciplines, if I just stay in the Word, if I just stay in prayer, then I'll be okay. I'll be okay. It's probably nothing I really need to worry about. And yet there's something strong under the surface. It's the reason why many of us at times in our lives find ourselves stuck. And we're thinking, man, I'm, I'm at the 9.30 every week. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm praying. I'm trying so hard. But it just feels like there's this something that is shaping me, that is pushing me in this direction. And I don't know where it's coming from or what to do with it. 
Some of us are enslaved by the power of our past and others of us are just ignorant of the way it is shaping us and directing us. But the good news this morning that we've already heard and we've already sang is that no, how great the power of our past is, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater. It is greater whether you have had great sins committed against you. And I know some of you in this room have had to with this many people. You have had awful things done to you, said to you, or committed against you. Or whether you're the one on the other side of that. You have done awful things to people. You have sinned greatly against other people. Whether you come this morning as someone greatly sinned against, someone who has greatly sinned against others, or like most of us, you are both and. Jesus wants to give you freedom from the power of the past. But you must bring your past under His power. How do we do that? The first thing is you've got to believe it has power. We come to this story here, this story of David and Mephibosheth. And we see that Mephibosheth's past was very powerful. Now, what am I talking about? Well, you could go back earlier into the book of Samuel, and you can read sort of the background of what is behind this text. And you will see that as David is calling to see if there is someone in the family of Jonathan or the family of Saul that David can show kindness to, David is speaking about a complex series of relationships here. Saul was the first king in Israel who started out on a fairly good track but before long became someone who was basically psychotic, at times even acting schizophrenic. When David would come and would play for Saul, all of a sudden Saul, he would play the harp for Saul to sort of comfort him for those who don't know this whole story. Every now and then Saul would just kind of like lose it, grab a spear and throw it at David. And then when Saul finds out that David actually is going to be the rival for his position as king, he just hunts him all over the place to kill him. Well, what's strange about this, though, is that Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's best friend. And Jonathan is Mephibosheth's father. And as God's judgment comes upon Saul and his family, because Saul continues to live in disobedience to the Lord, Saul, both Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, we read this first instance of what happened to Mephibosheth. You notice the text said that he was lame in both feet. You know why he was? When Saul and Jonathan and the people of Israel were attacked, as the family of Saul tried to get out of town, the nurse that was holding Mephibosheth dropped him as a baby. And he would never walk again. Mephibosheth's past was very powerful. Not just because of that what happened, but because in the ancient Near East, your family, and it's powerful today, but your family identity was everything then. People's last names were son of the person. So Mephibosheth lives with this sort of legacy in his life that, yeah, old crazy Saul, that's my grandpa. And probably Mephibosheth, after his dad died, had to go live with his uncle, Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. And Ishbosheth, man of shame, Mephibosheth's uncle, would be murdered. And so it's no surprise then that here as David calls him, we notice this is sort of Mephibosheth's vision of himself. He says, I'm a dead dog. You would have regard for such a dead dog 
as I. Dead dog Mephibosheth is called into the presence of the king, but this calling into the presence of the king in many ways is probably just a bringing up of his past in his face in an even greater way. Mephibosheth here shows us that the way we look look at ourselves, look at God, look at the world, has a lot to do at times with the things that we have went through. Now, all of the Bible teaches this, that the patterns of sin in our families continue. You think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife to get out of trouble. If you read this story. Guess what Isaac did? He lied about Rebekah being his wife so he could get out of trouble. Then they have Jacob, and guess what Jacob's name is? His name means deceiver. (laughs) And then Jacob has these 12 sons... 11 of which, or 10 of which, lie about their brother Joseph being killed. Just coincidence? No, the past has power in our lives. I remember when my wife and I were first married, we hadn't been married very long, and for one Friday night, for some reason, I was thinking that we were going to be going out to eat, and she was thinking that we were going to be saving money. This still happens very often. And I remember she made spaghetti... And all of a sudden, for some reason, we're in this like little tiny block apartment. I open the door on the refrigerator, and the spaghetti plate tilts, and there all the spaghetti goes off in the floor. And so not only are we not getting to go do what I wanted to do, now even the spaghetti's in the floor. And so I'm thinking, this is her fault. When we were dating, we got to go do whatever we wanted. And now we have to play by all these rules. And so all of a sudden, I don't know what happens to me. We get into this argument, and I get mad, and I grab my cup full of water, and I sling it across the room, hits a lamp, and knocks it over. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my goodness. I guess we're probably going to be divorced before long. (laughs) And she's still there. She's still engaging. But you know why why I thought we were probably about to be divorced? It's because I never saw my parents fight once. Now, there was tension, but I'd never seen it. And so when I reacted that way and did that, I had no category in my mind that that was recoverable from. But she watched her parents and her family go after it. (laughs) I won't even go there on some of the things I even got to witness early on. And so for her, it's like, this is what married people do. You have fights, and you get over it, and you move forward. You see that we were bringing in all of this past into our relationships, into our situations, and it shaped the way we viewed the world, it shaped the way we viewed ourselves, and this is the case in all of our lives, sometimes in ways that we never even realize. For some of you talking about the power of the past, it makes you cringe, Oh, that's psycho babble. Didn't Paul say in Philippians 3 to put behind the things that are in the past? When Paul there was saying put behind the way that you defined yourself by the past, not put behind what happened in the past, because Paul's going to talk a lot, and we'll get to this in weeks to come, about a thorn in his flesh, all about how his past affects his present. Some of you think if I talk about that, I'm going to be dishonoring my parents. And so I don't want to go there. That's dishonoring to them. In our family, we were taught, you don't air out your dirty laundry. 
Some of you think, if I acknowledge the power of the past, then I'm not taking responsibility for my own actions. When it's exactly the opposite. Some of you think, why would I dig up this dead dog? All it is, it's just going to stink and cause a mess, and nothing good will come from it. Some of us feel overwhelmed because we think, uh, if, if that has such an effect on me, I bet I'm really screwing my kids up. I think I even overheard myself recently say, yeah, you can deal with that in therapy when you grow up later on. But, but I wish I was kidding. Why should we not refuse to explore the power of our past? It's because even if you ignore it, it's still there. You put the pictures on the check engine light and go home smiling, nothing's changed. Sweeping it under the carpet just means you're going to keep tripping over it and other people in your life are going to keep tripping over it too. The past has power. It's no coincidence that I uh, counseled and ministered with a lady who always was gossiping, who always was trying to get into the, the clique around the church family because when she grew up, she was adopted and she was told from an early age that she wasn't worth anything. That although she was a part of this family, she wasn't really a part of the family. She was sort of tolerated and should just be thankful that she was getting fed and had somewhere to live. And so the rest of her life and the way she experienced relationships is she was going to do whatever it took to get an edge. It's no coincidence another man that I've met and talked with who when his dad was killed in a truck wreck at an early age and discovered pornography and to begin to seek to, to find his way as being a man through dominating women, through viewing them as conquest, was because he never had someone in his life who showed him what it actually meant to be a man. There's no reason that one of my other friends who dad, whose dad died when he was young and then his sister died when he was young has, hard time, has a very hard time accepting the fact that God is in control of everything and God is good. The past directs who we are whether we like it or not. So we do well to take our fingers out of our ears. We do well to do what we talked about last week. To face it honestly. To acknowledge the truth. To give it to God in all of its raw mess. And then to see what the gospel has to say. And that's what we see in our text today. That although the past does have power, it doesn't have ultimate power. Although the past is something, that doesn't mean the past is everything because what we see here is Mephibosheth meets a man who's more powerful than his past notice in verses 5 through 8 we won't read through all these but it says that David sends for him he calls him and then he calls him by name Mephibosheth exclamation point David the king treats him as a person not as a nameless victim Mephibosheth had faced a lot of things in his life that he, horizontally, that is, people-wise, he, he was innocent. He had just suffered. He had just hurt. And I'm sure that people and even himself had sought to identify himself based on his pain and his problems. But David calls him by name. And it's not just that David calls him by name, but we see here in the text, it's King David calls him Mephibosheth. King David calls him by name. King David pledges to him kindness. And not just any kind of kindness, but if you see within this text, it is a covenant kindness. 
Why is David so set on showing faithfulness to someone, anyone who's in the family of Jonathan? It's because David made a promise with his best friend Jonathan, a promise that was called a covenant. If you read back in to 1 Samuel, that no matter what happens, Jonathan, I am going to take care of your family. And he makes this covenant that's more than just a handshake with Jonathan, but is a pledge to the death that he will be faithful to what he has said. So what we see here, what David has done in the past, defines Mephibosheth, not what Mephibosheth has had happened to him or he has done in the past. Mephibosheth has lived outside of this covenant reality likely his whole life, in ignorance of it, just like maybe some of you have. Maybe you've known of King Jesus, but you've not known of the fact that what he offers you is a promise, covenant relationship that is bigger than anything that has ever happened to you. That what he has did for you in his past is greater than anything done to you in your past. Luke and Jerry and I are reading a book about what it means to, to be the church in different cultures. And we were reading this interesting part about this missionary who is seeking to reach Korean prostitutes. Now, before any of you guys get any ideas of starting a new mission to prostitutes, we're not going to do that. But these, this, these missionaries decided, we've got to reach these women. These women have a lot of shame. These women have a big past. And so they think, we're going to go and we're going to speak to them about the love of God. And so they go and they begin to talk to these Korean prostitutes about the love of God. And they just sort of laugh it off. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, we know God loves us. We know Jesus died for our sins. That's probably what some of you are in here thinking right now. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. Is it about time to go eat lunch? But what you're failing to see and what we can all fail is that Jesus loves us and has died for us is not merely an empty sentimental phrase, but it comes with the authority of the king of the universe. And so you know how these missionaries decided if we're going to reach these ladies, then we've not got to just tell them about God's love. We've got to tell them about God's authority. We've got to tell them about God's sovereignty. We've got to tell them that the fact that God is king because in their culture, they realized what it meant to have an authority over them that could define their existence. And so, so they told them of a God, of a King, of a Savior who didn't merely just die for their sins, but a Savior who had the sovereignty, who had the rule, and who had the place to tell them the truth about who they are, whether they felt it was true or not. And that's who Jesus is today. He's the King. So you still don't feel like it's all forgiven. Well, guess what? It is. If you are in Jesus, what you feel does not change what is real. Jesus is calling you today, just as David called Mephibosheth, out of this nowhere land full of shame existence because of either what's been done to you or what you have done to others. He calls you by name. He has borne your shame. And he says, come to my table. He says the same words that David said to Mephibosheth. 
David said to him, Do not fear. What they did to you doesn't define you. What you did doesn't define you. What I have done defines you. You think, well, you just don't know the pain that I've been through. I don't know that I could trust that Jesus understands what it's like to suffer. Some of you I know in horrible ways. This is why we want to look at Isaiah 53. And I just want to pray as we read this text that you'll just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And put your story in this story. And let me ask you, if, as we read this, if you do not have a Savior and a King who not only calls you, but who can identify with you and who can define you now. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, in this prophesying of Jesus, grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, from, and as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Some of us have felt because of our past despised, rejected, sorrows, grief. People that if you think if they knew that about me, they wouldn't even want to look at me. Verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So even though He, was, <laughs> he wasn't doing anything wrong, He was considered to be one who was wrong. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. So the sins we did commit, even in response to our suffering, or as those who cause it, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and on him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You could read on there. Do you see a Savior who has borne your sin? Who has borne your shame? There's no other place you can run to and find someone who can give you the healing and the salvation that Jesus brings. Some of you in here are trying to find distractions to define you because of the pain in your life, whether it happened to you or you have caused it. You're trying to find some sort of comfort idol. If I can just keep myself entertained, if I can just keep this substance in my life, if I can just do this, it will distract me, it will dull it, but all it is doing is numbing you from the real thing that needs to be dealt with. 
Others of you are looking to some sort of success in life. I'm going to be the best at my job. Others of you are looking to some kind of approval from somebody else. If I could just have this girl, if I could just have this guy, if I could just have this relationship, then I would be whole. But none of these other gods are God. They don't have the authority to define you, to heal you, and to make you whole. But in Christ we find a good news, past, present, and future. That the penalty of our sin has been paid for. That the power of sin can be broken in our lives. And that we can have a future where the presence of sin will no longer be in this world. But we have to live that out. And this is how our text ends this morning. In verses 9 through 13, we see that the power of the past is broken by living at the table of the family of the king. David says to Mephibosheth, from now on, Mephibosheth, I know you've been out here living in shame. I know you've been out here just trying to survive with all of your wounds and all of your bitterness. But now you're going to eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Did you hear that? Is that not amazing? That Mephibosheth's life now is totally redefined. And it's not just redefined, it's going to be totally redirected. Because Jesus calls us from where we are, but He loves us too much to leave us there. He will not let us identify ourselves as victims, even if we have been victimized. But He calls us to identify ourselves as those who are victors through His victory. And then to live that out in the power of the gospel. Do you realize that? You're a part of a new family. That through Jesus now God is your father. And no matter how your father treated you, you now have a perfect father who loves you and looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? It's those who do the will of God. He calls you to this table to be changed. Watching this television show recently, and it has a child who was adopted, and the child was older. And we all know any of us that are familiar with adoption or the foster system, that as kids reach a certain age, it's sad, but some people begin to speak of them as unadoptable. And why do they call them that? Well, because the sad truth is most people say, well, you know, once they get a certain age, they've probably just got too much baggage now. They've probably just got too many issues. I mean, it's one thing for me to take on this baby because I can still kind of shape it. But this older child who's already been through all of this junk, I think that might be just a little too overwhelming. And the good news is this morning is that God, He looks at us and He doesn't say they've got too much junk they've went through. They've already just been shaped too much by their past. So there's nothing I could do with them. But He loves us. And He calls us to the table. And He gives His people His Spirit that calls out no matter what your past. Abba, Father. And then He begins to work and change us. Because guess what? Our past isn't just erased, although the penalty of it has been. And so you call this child to the table and in this television show, this is what we see, is the child that's grown up in the home and been there a while knows that when they come home from school, they do their homework. And when they finish their homework, they come to the supper table. But this other kid, what does he do? He's never had anybody care about him in his whole life. 
And so he comes in, just plops on the couch and starts playing video games. When his mom calls him to the t- table, he smarts off to her because in the family that he had grown up in, you just that's how people communicated. And so he has to be reparented, as it were, not out of evil, but out of love. And this is what discipleship is. Jesus comes to reparent all of us, in spite of our past, into the new people of God who are identified by He and His work for us. But we've got to bring it to Him. Do you realize why some of you and so many of your lives are controlled by money? It's because you grew up in a family situation where the message was, whether it was spoken or not spoken, is that money is the best source of security. And so the more you have, the more important you are, and so you need to do everything you can to make lots of it and show other people you have it. Versus the gospel, that as Jesus calls you to his table, he says, you know you can let go of all that. Because he who has done this for you and giving his son, he's going to take care of you. There's some of you who've grown up in family situations or past where conflict was something just to be avoided at all costs. Don't make people mad at you. Don't bring up stuff. It's not worth it. And so guess what now? You don't. Versus the gospel table that calls you to see that Jesus went to the lengths of not just speaking the truth, but being the truth, dying for the truth, not to make things worse, but for reconciliation. Some of you, because of what has happened in your past, sex is an issue that's not to be talked about, not to be dealt with. It's a bad thing. It's a dirty thing. Some of you have been taught, well, men can be promiscuous, but women must be chaste. Just do whatever your past. You have all of these standards, and so now it affects you. Grief and loss. You, some of you have been raised to think sadness is a sign of weakness. Others of you have been raised in a family, again, as we said earlier, where you just don't talk about things. That's dishonorable. Some of you, because of the relationships you've had in the past, in and outside of your family, you just don't trust people. You just won't trust anybody. Some of you just feel like that because of what's happened in your past, you have to be fake. And you've learned by watching people that tell in lies... And being phony, that's how you survive in this world. And you know what? It doesn't matter how often you pray. And it doesn't matter how many checklists you have of reading your Bible through the year. If you don't bring this to God and let the gospel speak to it and define it, you will not mature as a believer Think of the movie Cinderella. Cinderella had a pretty bad home life, didn't she? Here she's got, and I know some awesome stepmoms, so isn't it kind of unfair the way Disney does stepmoms? But anyway, uh, she has this evil stepmother and these evil stepsisters, and they just create this climate where her life is miserable. I mean, real life it would be miserable, right? Because there's not talking mice and birds. So, let's take that out. 
But really, if you were to think about it, that's the only way in that kind of existence what she's going through. You probably would start to see mice and birds, wouldn't you? I've got to find any way to make this bearable and doable. I mean, it's no wonder why so many kids who are growing up in a Cinderella-type existence will have this, like, imaginary friend later on into life, right? To do anything they can to cope with the situation. But that's not how the Cinderella story ends, does it? And we all love a Cinderella story because what happens? Prince Charming. That's the right movie, isn't it? Prince Charming. In spite of everything the enemies can do, the evil stepmother, Drusilla and... Priscilla? No. Anastasia, thank you. No matter what all the enemies can do, when the king is set to make Cinderella his, they can't be stopped. And when the king takes Cinderella back to his castle, then it doesn't matter anything that was said to her or done to her in the past. She is now the bride of the king. And that's the gospel, brothers and sisters. We are the Cinderella story. Because the king has came, he has brought us home, and now we and our future are defined by who he is and what he has done. Mephibosheth's name is hard to interpret what it means. We know Besheth means shame, but we're not quite sure what meth means. It might mean man of shame, or it may mean Terminator of shame. I like that one better. But regardless of what his name means, there's a blank there, isn't there? That's really more to be filled in in his life and our lives by how deeply we will believe in what the king has said about who we are. You don't have the power to change the patterns of your past. You don't. But he does. And He is in you through His Spirit and calling you now to walk in His path if we will believe that Jesus has the power to break the power of our past. Father, we thank You so much for who You are, that You have came and rescued us. Lord, whether we think that we had the greatest past in the world, God, give us the humility if we had the greatest past in the world to see even how it shaped us in ways, God, that aren't true to the gospel. If we've had the most horrible past in the world, help us to see that you have borne our shame. You have borne our sin. Thank you, God, that whether we have been guilty sufferers or at least as it pertains to man, innocent sufferers, that you are with us. And we ask that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.